So we're in the book of Isaiah, and I chose this passage because it's a Christmas passage that many people are familiar with. But before we get into it, I have a couple of questions for you. How many of you have had more cookies in the last couple of days than you've had in the last six months? Yeah, and I love cookies. That's part of the problem. I'm like a cookie monster, not in the blue Sesame Street sense, but uh, I love cookies but I am a terrible shopper. How many other terrible shoppers in here? I, am, I have the worst time buying gifts for people. And so uh, this year, though, I was doing some research on the internet and uh, came across a website that said, you can never go wrong with Apple products. And I thought, huh, Apple, that's interesting. Okay, I can go with that. So now I don't see my wife in here. So can you guys keep the secret? Come on now, we're in church. <laughs> because I got my wife some special things for Christmas, and I don't want her to know about them. So I took the advice I was given, and I got some Apple products for her. I thought I'd show you to see what you thought. So the first I came across was this one here. You ever seen one of these before? That is an Apple slicer, right? I think she's going to be pumped when she gets that. And there's more, too. Of course, I mean, this is going to fit right in her stocking. This is applesauce. So... And there's more. I just couldn't bring it off. So I got her some Apple products. Now, don't tell her because I don't want you to ruin the surprise. That actually has nothing to do with the sermon today. But it does have everything to do with an article that I read as I was getting ready for today. The article was entitled, Forget Nations, Here's Proof That Apple Rules the World. And the title caught my attention as I hear you groaning as if it's caught your attention as well. Here's proof that Apple rules the world. And the article went on to talk about the future of our world is not in nation states, in other words, nations that are governed as nations, but really the future of the world is in corporate states. The corporations will be ruling the world. Apple, for instance, has $256 billion in cash on hand. Although the company is worth about $800 billion, they have $256 billion cash on hand. That means that if they wanted to get something for their loved one for Christmas, Apple Company, they could go down to the corporate store and they could purchase off the shelf for cash the company Tesla, Netflix, Uber, Airbnb, Twitter, and a new company called Edenap. They could purchase all those companies and then still get $16 billion in change before they left the store. That's in cash. Now contrast that with our U.S. government, that is $2.6 trillion in debt. Quite a difference, huh? So we can see that the article was reflecting on the tremendous power and the spending power, purchasing power, influence power that a company like Apple has over the world, how we think, how we interact with each other, how we interact with the world around us. And that article caught my attention because that's exactly what Isaiah chapter 9 is about. I'm going to read the passage and you'll see why this is applicable. And they'll put the passage up on the screen if you would. I'm just going to read to you Isaiah 9 verses 6 and 7. We'll be talking about a larger section of it. And you'll recognize it right away. Isaiah 9, 6 says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, 
mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now you might say, Steve, I appreciate you going back to the Old Testament to read that verse, but why don't you read it to us from the New Testament? I'm sure it's somewhere, it's so popular, it's so well known, I'm sure that that passage exists somewhere in the New Testament. Well, guess what, church? It doesn't. No New Testament writer quotes that verse, although verses around it are quoted, we get the Emmanuel prophecy from Isaiah that this child that's going to be born that Isaiah talks about is going to be named Emmanuel, which means God with us. That comes from Isaiah chapter 7. Speaking of the same child, and I'll read you a passage here in chapter 9 that's also referred to by Matthew. So these words, we're very familiar with them, and they're very commonly used at Christmas time. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. But what we really miss out on is the context. Why was that said? What was going on in the days of Isaiah? Isaiah ministered about 700 years before Jesus was ever born. He was the, had a long ministry. He was like the Billy Graham of his day. Except the problem is, when he preached, people didn't get saved. They walked away from the Lord. His preaching was so simple and so clear. And his job was that he would preach, people would hear about God, and their hearts would get hard because they didn't want to know about God. They were rejecting God. And so Isaiah, his ministry lasted through a number of kings' reigns. Now, the kings of the southern area of Israel, which we call Judah, the kings, we elect presidents. Kings are not elected. It was part of a, a line of kings. They were born into it. You know how that works, right? You know how monarchies work. So you're a king and you have a son, he's a prince, and then he becomes king when you die and, and so on down the line. So Isaiah had this ministry that spanned a number of reigns of different kings. Some of them were better than others. But the one that is concerned with this passage right here is the king named Ahaz, A-H-A-Z, Ahaz. And I know this is a lot of history, but I promised you I was going to give you the, the context because the Bible is not written in a vacuum. In other words, Isaiah doesn't say, you know what? You know, I, I thought about, you know, being a postman. I thought about being a computer scientist. I thought about this. But, you know, I think I'm going to be a prophet. So I'm going to sit down. I need, if I'm going to be a prophet, I need to write a book. So maybe I can make a prophet. And he just doesn't sit down and, and write a book because he had a few things he wanted to say. He is speaking for God. That's what being a, a prophet means. He is God's spokesperson. So when he writes, he's writing about things that are happening at the time and going to happen in the future. He doesn't even understand some of the things he's writing. He's just, God is talking. He's like, okay, God, slow down. I'm, I'm trying to keep up with you here. He's writing. Not everything he writes does he understand. So God's not writing into a, a vacuum. He's writing into a, a military situation. There's a governmental situation. There's economics, just like our world. God doesn't come to us and speak to us kind of separate from the world we live in. That's exactly what Christmas is about, that Jesus came to the very world that he came to at that time, the world where Israel was ruled by the Romans and the difficulties they were having governmentally, the difficulties they were having culturally, the separations, the divisions, just like in our time now. And into that, God comes. He enters into that. And so Ahaz 
is the king at the time in the southern kingdom of Judah. And some of you know that, as I said, there's some good kings and there's some bad kings. There's some good presidents and there's some bad presidents. I'll let you fill in the blanks there. I'm not going there this morning. Ahaz, on the scale of one to ten of kings, ten being the best and one being the worst, Ahaz was a negative ten. He was a terrible king. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us that under his leadership, he encouraged, in his nation, he encouraged moral decline. He was morally insufficient himself. He was searching for every kind of God. He would worship whatever. He sacrificed his children to false gods. He did whatever seemed to be going on at the time. Anything but, this sounds familiar, anything but the true and living God. The Bible says he was unfaithful to his God, the God of the Jews, and he encouraged moral decline. Now, that doesn't ring a bell for today, does it? We live in a world where everybody is seeking to be more morally appropriate and more morally inclined. No, I think we know that we live in a world where many are, in our day and age, encouraging moral decline. You can't make a profit on morality, but boy, can you profit on immorality. And this is the world that Isaiah was trying to minister in. This is the world that we're trying to to minister in. So because of that problem in their nation, because of the terrible leadership, because the people had all walked away from God, for the most part, they were going to come under attack by the Assyrians in the north. And the Assyrians were going to basically run over them, overflow them, and take many of them away captive back to Assyria. And then eventually they'd repopulate the area and they would lose their whole identity. And God says in chapter 8 of Isaiah, this is what's going to happen. The Assyrians are going to attack you. And I'll read you a couple of verses here. This is at the end of chapter 8. Can you imagine it's a pretty dark time when you find out your nation's going to be under attack? It's not something we can really relate to in our day and age. We feel pretty safe here in America. Yeah, there's North Korea, and yeah, there's all that other stuff going on out there, but we feel pretty safe. You know, it's hard to imagine another nation coming to America to battle, to do war with us, and carting away our families and ourselves to another country. We can't imagine that, but they could. And so this is what happens as this is being looked forward to, as this is about to happen. Verse 21 of chapter 8 says, They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry, and it shall happen when they are hungry, that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. So when these things happen, what it's going to produce in the people is they're going to be enraged. They're going to curse their king. That's not an unfamiliar sentiment. But they're also going to curse God and they're going to look up. That's oftentimes the only time people will look up is to curse God. And God is not a convenient truth or not someone I want to talk about in my life until something goes wrong. And then I need someone to blame because it couldn't be my fault. So we turn to God to blame him. Even though I didn't want anything to do with him for the majority of my life, now that something's happened and I deem it bad, then I'm going to say, oh, well, where was God? And why didn't God do something? They're no different than us. Tell me you understand that the people have been the same all throughout the ages of history. We are not more enlightened. You know, we have more technology. We have more ways to get in trouble now. But people are the same across the ages. And God is the same across the ages. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so they look upward. And then verse 22 says, then they will look to the earth. They'll watch CNN. They'll check out Fox News. They'll listen to the Daily news program on the radio, they'll look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom and anguish. That's what they saw around them. And they will be driven into darkness. 
aren't you glad you came to church on Christmas Eve morning? I mean, Steve, we are so encouraged. I thought you said he was funny. But this is where this prophecy of the child starts, with people being driven into darkness, hopelessness, blindness, discouragement. And then the beginning of chapter 9, where we're heading, remember, we're heading to chapter 9, verse 6. The beginning of chapter 9 begins with the word, nevertheless. And he goes on in the first two verses of chapter 9 to talk about light coming in. Verse 2 begins with, in Galilee of the Gentiles, that's the region around the Sea of Galilee up in the north, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. So we begin to see, just like we talk about at Christmas time, Jesus being born, this is sort of light coming into the world. John chapter 1 talks about that. And light came into the world, and people liked their darkness better than they liked the light. So light came into the world. Matthew actually quotes this very verse from Isaiah 9 in Matthew chapter 4, and he makes it refer to, understands it refers ultimately to who? Of course, Jesus. Jesus is the light that came in and set up his ministry, where? Not in Jerusalem, but in the Galilee region around the Sea of Galilee, specifically Capernaum, that area that was sort of a, this is the border city the border city, right on the border of all their enemies attacking from the north and from the east. They got the brunt of all the problem. And God says, and now they're going to get the greatest of the blessing. Jesus is going to set up his ministry in Galilee of the Gentiles. A light is going to shine there. Now watch what happens in the next couple of verses, verses three and four. The word joy and rejoice is repeated a few times. If you're following along, 9.3 says, you have multiplied the nation and increased its what? It's joy. Well, what happened to the people being driven in darkness? They're going to be taken away captive, but some are going to return later. See, we have this problem in our lives. We think that like, if things are a certain way now, that they're always going to be this way. Can I tell you the greatest thing that you have is your imagination? And I'm not talking about imagining lies. I'm talking your ability to imagine truth happening. We call it faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. But you have to use your imagination, not to imagine difficulty, not to imagine that my husband's never going to change, the kids are going to be a mess, everything's going to go wrong. You have to use your imagination to imagine God's word is going to become true. Matter of fact, in this passage, it says the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus isn't going to show up on the scene for another 700 years. How can he say they have seen it like it's happening now? It's a verb tense we call the prophetic present. Although it's going to happen 700 years later, it's so certain that Isaiah can say it as if it's already happened. That's how certain God's word is. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of a harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian, for every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. So there's two pictures that Isaiah gives us to understand the kind of joy we're talking about. He says, number one, it's this kind of joy, you know, when you go to the grocery store and your cart is full and the pantry's been empty and you come home and you bring all that good food home and you just start, oh, we haven't had this in a while. We haven't had this in a while. And there's this joy of bringing in the harvest. For them, it meant a lot more because they were an agricultural country. And so 
if you didn't go down to Walmart to grab your groceries, you had to grow them. And that meant a lot of hard work. That meant a lot of prayer. That meant you needed God to make it rain on your crops. That meant you needed the locusts not to eat them. It was a big deal. Like you worked hard and some years the whole crop was destroyed. And so when you got a harvest, it's like our Thanksgiving. I mean, they sat around, they ate turkey and watched football. They didn't have football. But that's one kind of joy. It's this joy of a harvest when we've been blessed. The second kind of joy, he says, it's the joy when people divide the spoil, when there's been a war and there's been a great victory. You've won and you divide up the spoil. You go, oh, you got all this stuff from the victory. It's kind of like the championship football game. You've watched the Super Bowl and it's an intense game and sometimes it's better than others. Sometimes it comes right down to the wire and does the winning team go into the locker room and go, hey, that was a pretty good game, wasn't it? Yeah, that was a good game. How about we do it again next year? Yeah, sure. No, they're celebrating, they're rejoicing, they're jumping on each other, they're high-fiving. There's this great joy, like they just won this great battle, this great victory. Now that's joy, right? By the way, there's a message on our stage that you can always find joy where? At the base of the cross, at the foot of the cross. I like that back there. So he talks about this great joy that's going to come to them. Now again, it's not right then. They're going to have to go through some suffering But in the future, God is going to bring them to a place of joy. And the question is, it brings us to verse 6, how in the world is God going to take them from being driven into darkness to experiencing this great joy like a harvest or a winning football championship? And that is where we get to our verse. For unto us a child is born. Not just any child. He says, for, this means this is how it, for, this is how. This is the way. How is God going to do this? For, unto us a child is born. That child is the key to their future joy. That child is not just any child. People have kids all the time. Matter of fact, for unto us a child is born. We have two kids, and upon neither of their births did we call my parents or my wife's parents and say, hey, guess what? Great news. Unto us a child is born. Like, who is the us? I mean, unto us, the child is born. Us was not the husband and the wife. Us was not just Mary and Joseph. Unto us was Israel. Unto us is us. If you look that word up in the Greek, guess what it means? It means us. Unto us, unto me, and to you, this child is born. Christmas is personal. Christmas is very personal, and we remember it year after year. We remember the personal nature that if there was one person on the face of the earth that needed God, Jesus would have come for that one person. Unto me, a child was born. But us is just a bunch of me's, right? The English teachers are like freaking out now. Don't bring your kids here for English lessons. 700 years between this prophecy and the birth of Jesus, also spoken in the prophetic present. It says, for unto us a child, doesn't say will be born, it says the child is born. It's as if it's good as done, even though there's a 700-year waiting period. One more thing to note on this, that when Jesus was born, he didn't come into being. He came into human being. He stepped out of eternity. He already existed. You got to know that about Christmas. Jesus is not just a human birth. He's both human and divine. He added humanity to his divinity that already existed. Didn't give up his divinity, 
but he added humanity. And that certainly brings some challenges. And he goes on to say, not only unto us is a child is born, that child, by the way, Isaiah prophesied he would suffer on our behalf. By his stripes, we would be healed. Isaiah 53, one of the most amazing passages about the suffering servant. This child would become the suffering servant before he would become the reigning king. And that's what makes it so confusing. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. A son is given. You know the verse. It's John 3.16. You've heard it. You've quoted it. You may have it memorized. For God so loved the world that he gave his who? His only begotten son. It's almost as if it's just quoting right here in the Gospel of John. Unto us a son is given. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever, listen, whosoever believes in him should not perish, but enjoy everlasting life. I love the little word so in that passage. It's just two little letters, but it means so much, doesn't it? Like God so loved. They could have just said, well, God loved the world. Like your kids, you're going to give them something and they're going to so, they've so wanted that thing. Like your kids, they've got it on the list and they're ready for it. They want it. And they so, I so want, I want that. I so want that. And then they get it and they so love it for about a week. And then they so want that and, and so on it goes. But God so loved the world and you, you're part of the world. This is the divine love that we can't even imagine. God so loved the world that he gave his son. That's how much. And the son wasn't a victim in this. He was a willing participant. It's not like God the Father said, okay, get down there. No, do I have to go? Yes, get down there. Don't you talk back to me. No, it wasn't that kind of thing. Jesus and God formulated the plan together. Will you go? Yes, I'll go. God so loved the world that he gave his son. The son so loved the world that he came to die on a cross. By the way, the next verse says that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He came as a rescuer. He came to rescue people from their sin. He came to rescue people from their idolatry. He came to rescue people from their meaningless and purposeless religion and religious routines. Now, we could write another verse with that. God so loved the world that he gave his son, but man, listen carefully, man so hated God that he killed him when he came. That's pretty jaw-dropping, isn't it? It's a jarring kind of thought, but that's exactly what happened. You see, we live in a world, many of you already know, you just have to watch the news, the TV to know, we live in a world that is rebellious against God. That is the natural sinful state of human being is to rebel against God. Matter of fact, right in Isaiah chapter one, this is what God says through Isaiah about his people. God says, I have nourished and brought up children and they have rebelled against me. This is God talking about his children. If you are a mom and dad in here, you know that in those kids, there is a propensity to rebel. If you say it's black, they say it's white. That's sin. That's the sinful, rebellious nature. And there's nothing you can do about it in your kids. So you're in good company. If you got disobedient kids that are rebellious against your authority, they're just doing what sin tells them to do. They're doing exactly what God's nation did to him. And do you think God was an insufficient parent? Matter of fact, God goes on to say, I did everything I could to help bring you upright. And none of it was good enough. But watch what, watch what he says here. I've nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. And then he gives an example. He says, the ox knows its owner, 
and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. You see, the next verse here says, unto us a son is given, and this son is going to be a king, because the next verse says, and the government will be upon his shoulder. The government will be upon his shoulder. Now, I don't know how you feel about government, but I'll tell you this, that God has no problem governing the natural world. This is what God said to Job when Job was challenging God, asking God, why are you doing this, God? Why have you forsaken me? That kind of thing. God says to Job, hey, let me ask you some questions. He says, let me ask you a question, Job. The planets, they seem to stay in their rotations. They seem to be a consistent orbit there. What do you have to do with that? Like, have you helped that? Have you participated in that, keeping the planets in, in orbit, keeping the sun where it's supposed to be? What about the deer? Like, have the deer needed you to help them know how to give birth and where to give birth? And the answer to all that is no. Let me ask this question. What if every human being disappeared from the face of the earth? What if we all went extinct? Do you think the earth would fall apart or do you think it would do better? I think we all agreed probably do better without us. Now that's a horrifying thought, isn't it? That should make us think. Now, of course, we can't prove that, but there's plenty of movies that have asked that same question. Corruption is defined as the abuse of entrusted power for private gain. And by that definition, 85% of human beings live under corrupt governments today. 85%. This is as of 2015, moving into 2016, moving into 2017. End of 2016, 85% of people in the world, your brothers and sisters, human beings, live under what's defined as corrupt governments, where people use entrusted power for private gain. Not only that, overall in the world, democracy is losing traction. And there are more countries, this is the real troubling part, there are more countries that are declining or moving more into corruption than in last year's results. So as a world, we're moving more into corruption, more people living in corrupt governments, they living in a corrupt government under Ahaz with the Assyrian government nearby. And into that, this promise comes, the government will be upon his shoulder. He does a pretty good job with the natural world, doesn't he? But the ox knows its owner, and the donkey, well, it knows its master's crib, knows where to sleep and get food. But he says, my people don't know. Isn't that funny? He says there that people are dumber than animals. An ox is supposed to be a dumb animal. It's a burden-bearing animal. But it, in some ways, is smarter than people who reject the authority of God in their lives, who reject submitting themselves to him. And all the goodness that comes from that. You see, the donkey's smart enough to know, well, I may not be happy about what I got to do, but I know who's feeding me. I know where I get blessed. And God says, but humans, what's the deal? Well, there's a day coming, not yet is, when the government will be upon his shoulders. See, right now, we can't say that verse is fully fulfilled because the government right now is on the shoulders of a lot of human men. You see, we have this terrible dichotomy in ourselves, this conflict in us. Every human being wants to rule themselves, but is terribly incapable of doing so. And so we're caught, we're stuck. On one hand, we want to rule ourselves. We want to do what's right for ourselves. We want to make our own choices, follow our own path, chart our own course. If I'm not happy with the gender I'm born with, I'm going to change that. If I'm not happy about this, the hair I have, I'm going to do this. 
And we're going to say, ah, and all of it's sort of rebellion related. God is the potter and we're the clay. Who is the potter to say to the clay, why did you make me this way? My people, he says. The government will be on his shoulder. The question is, is that a good thing? I mean, is it a good thing someday for the government to be on his shoulders? Somebody say yes. You see, not only is this future and not only is it inevitable, but it's also good. How do you know it's good, Steve? Well, I'll show you right here. His name will be called. This is the characteristics. This is the nature of this child, the Messiah, both human and divine. What kind of ruler will he be? Not malevolent, not hurtful. In fact, he'll be wonderful. You see that? He's wonderful. You could also write there, marvelous. He's marvelous. When's the last time you watched the news about anything going on with the government and said, that's just marvelous? That's wonderful. We have such wonderful leadership. And look, we have some wonderful people in our government. I've met many of them. There's praying people there. They're doing Bible studies in Washington, D.C. So I'm not painting this completely bleak picture. But the problem is any institution that has humans involved is going to eventually wind down and fall into corruption. The government will be on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful, Marvelous, or Wonderful Counselor. Some put those together. Wonderful Counselor. He is going to be the kind of guy, the kind of leader that you can ask advice, always know exactly what to say every time. Jesus was like that, right? Jesus always knew exactly what to say in every situation. I love that. Now, how many of you have gotten some bad advice on occasion? And you took the advice. I mean, I hear it all the time in church. We hear this in church. Oh, you know, my friend, my girlfriend said I should just, you know, do this or just do that. I'm like, what? That has nothing to do with the Word of God. Nothing to do with the Bible. You need to go to Jesus for instruction so that the government of your heart is on his shoulders. You see, we can't complain about the government out there until we ask ourselves, is Jesus governing in here? I mean, that's what he came to be. He came to be king of your heart. Eventually, he'll be the king of the world. No one can stop that. Eventually, he will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He will be the king that every other king submits to. He'll be the Lord that every other lord submits to. He will rule with righteousness on the earth. But right now, the world lies under the sway of the wicked one, except for the church, where Jesus is the head and he set up his reign and rule in our hearts. He's come to dwell inside of us. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, or literally a hero. So there we see right there, not only is this a child born, but this child is not just the savior, a rescuer, but also this child is the mighty God. Not a wimpy God. Some of us live like we got a wimpy God. We have a mighty God. Ahaz knew that. Isaiah knows that. Mighty God. Everlasting Father, now wait a second. I thought Jesus was the Son and God is the Father. Is this saying that Jesus is the Father? No, it's a little bit of a difficult translation. You could say the Father or the originator of the perpetual age, the kingdom age. When you pray, thy will be done, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, you are praying for the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's the time when he will set up his reign on the earth and he will set up that age, that eternal age, that heavenly age where plowshares will be beaten out of swords and you know the rest. Everlasting Father, and I, this is probably one of my personal favorites, Prince of Peace. Who doesn't need a Prince of Peace? Everybody's looking to make war with everybody else. Everybody wants the same thing, but no one knows how to get it. 
When you say, and when we say, hey, we pray for world peace, what we're praying for is Jesus to return. Whatever religion you are, if you're praying for world peace, you're praying for the inevitable, righteous kingdom of Jesus Christ to take up root on the earth. That's what I want. I like this too. Of the increase or the abundance of his government and peace, there will be no end. Yeah, sometimes we manage to throw together a treaty in your family. Sometimes we, we manage to make a temporary peace. And sometimes you manage to make a temporary peace in your own life with those other things that are trying to be king to you. You're into this and you're into that and they're temporary things. I'm into running marathons and I'm doing that or I'm into this other thing. And I'm not saying those things are wrong, but they're lousy kings. I'm into this and this is my king and this is ruling my life and that's ruling my life and this addiction and this thing. And you never really have peace. When Jesus brings peace into a heart, it says the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. That's called stability. When there's one king and he reigns unopposed upon the throne of David, back to King David and his kingdom to order it, establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even how long, church? Forever. Forever. How do we know this is going to happen? I mean, how can we be sure, Steve, that this kingdom is going to be, yeah, future, but present, inevitable, good, and forever, and stable? Because that last line tells us, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. If God says it, it's certain. And if God's zealous about something, if God's determined to do something, is he going to do it? God was so determined to bless you that he broke into time, broke through heaven, came from heaven to earth to take away your sin, to judge death on the cross so that you could live, so that you could have life, so that he could come and miraculously, listen, I can't explain it to you. If you've never gotten saved, if you've never given your life to Christ, you can't understand that he's not just an outside king telling you what to do. He's on the inside, changing and transforming your life from the inside. This is not an outside job, it's an inside job. And that's how Jesus works. And every human being has to come to grips with that conflict. I want to rule myself, but I can't do it. And the only place, the only person that is meant to sit on that throne from back in the Garden of Eden, from time eternity past to time eternity future, the only king is Jesus Christ. And one day the Bible tells us every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So my suggestion, get on the right team now. Go see that baby in the manger, just like the Magi did. Bow before him and worship him now because he is the king.